If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Hey, buddy. If you want to really understand the lore of Alan Wake, start with the lore of control. There's something odd about Cauldron Lake. Artistic minds are most influenced by it, yet they also held sway over something in it, as though an infernal thing was inside and they played the part of the archetype warlock. Best not to have dealings with the devil. But when the protagonist doesn't realize their power and the threshold that they're crossing when nearing a place like Cauldron Lake, it's difficult to blame them for their own ignorance. Look at it another way. If a writer spent their career crafting fables and stories as an escapist pastime for others, how are they supposed to react when they find themselves part of an impossible tale? Let's meet Thomas Zane, a man almost as difficultly mysterious as the astral plane itself, but he was a man of flesh and blood, one step closer to relatability than, say, the board. In his earlier life, Zane was described as being a not very happy man. He was a poet, a writer, and a successful one at that. There's not a lot of records about his life. After all, we're talking about maybe the 1950s or the 1960s. But we can pick up with Zane's life at the late 1960s. He went to live in a place called Bright Falls, Washington, very close to Cauldron Lake. While there, he met a woman named Barbara Jagger, and he was smitten. He fell head over heels for this beautiful gal, and for the first time in his life, he was happy. She was the missing piece in his puzzle. She was his best friend, his inspiration, his muse. When she was around, his words flowed, strong and sharp, and they were happy together. Now, another character enters the scene, a very important one, that spends most of the story in the shadow, yet he will play a pivotal role. Emil Hartman. Hartman became an assistant to Thomas Zane when he was quite young, before he settled into his vocation as a psychiatrist later in life. And though Emil Hartman wasn't the creative type, he had a talent for words. Hartman knew that he lacked the imaginative spark that creatives had, but he was content acting as a producer of sorts. Now that we have our three main actors for what's to come, let's talk about the scene. Cauldron Lake, specifically. Because there was something in the lake. The Federal Bureau of Control would eventually come to call what was in the lake a threshold, a way into another dimension. Thresholds are created when the resonance of another dimension aligns with that of our dimension. So instead of things warping, changing, breaking, or being torn apart, they sort of align, and thus, a threshold. It's best to not view a threshold like a door, though. Sometimes it is as easy as just walking through one to enter a different space, but in the case of Cauldron Lake, it was a bit more complicated than that. And you observant ones out there may already be asking, if it's a connection to another dimension, then does that mean that there's something on the other side? Well, of course. And in the case of Cauldron Lake, it opened the way into the dimension of something called the Dark Presence. The Federal Bureau of Control would officially label it the Shadow in their documentation, but for our major localized actors in this tragedy, it was called the Dark Presence, and so we will refer to it as such. The Dark Presence was, slash is, a paranatural entity, like the Board or Polaris. And like those other entities, the Dark Presence was aware and had a will of its own. And although we sort of have to assign human traits to it so that we can make sense of its actions and its wants, Keep it tucked away in your mind that it's not really accurate to apply humanizing characteristics to it. It is not of our dimension. It's a being with paranatural abilities, and it comes from an environment completely alien to us. Now that we have set the stage, we're finally ready to get really weird with it. At some point in probably 1970, maybe the year before, 
Thomas Zane, the writer and poet, began to notice something weird about Cauldron Lake, so he started writing about it. The dark presence within the lake was not a constant and powerful presence. Its strength waxed and waned. It could certainly infect folks with itself, turning them into mindless puppets that it controlled completely. But for an elaborate mind, that of a masterful writer like Zane, it needed a finer approach. Less bull in the china shop, more manipulative ex-boyfriend. Zane and Barbara started spending more time out on the lake, specifically on a cabin out on an island called Diver's Isle. And Zane wrote all sorts of things about creatures inside the lake. He felt power surging through his typewriter, and though it was exhilarating, it also too became scary. He knew that there was something influencing him, and what happened here was far beyond inspiration and passion writing. Zane considered abandoning his ventures, leaving behind Cauldron Lake, but his assistant, Emil Hartman, who was well aware of the lake's influence over Zane, talked a good game and convinced him to stay. He had a way with words, and we'll soon see that Emil Hartman is, well, he's a bit of a bastard. In July of 1970, a true and merciless tragedy struck. Barbara went to take a swim in the lake, and somehow she drowned. But she was a great swimmer, and this was calm, easy water. That Barbara would drown in Cauldron Lake was just silly. But there was no evidence of anything foul taking place. There was no investigation into the matter. There was just horror. Thomas Zane, he broke. He couldn't go on without Barbara. She was his everything. Not but a few horrible days later did something otherworldly happen to Thomas Zane. The Dark Presence came to him and told him that he himself could write her back to life. He could revive his beloved. And then Emil Hartman started whispering into Zane's ear. There was power in the lake. What if he just did it? Thomas Zane, grief-stricken beyond rational thought, began to write. And here is where we stop, and we talk plainly and honestly, putting the veil of mystery aside, one lore thought to another. If it doesn't make sense now, then it will in a bit, but it's important to remember so that things don't get convoluted. While Thomas Zane was interacting with a paranatural entity, he did not have the ability to create a reality, to create people, to create places. Thomas Zane was not a god, nor did he possess the power of a godlike entity. What Thomas Zane could do, and what we'll see with future actors in this play, is he could influence the present and the future. He could create circumstances, capitalize on people who already existed or who were going to exist, events that were already going to happen or had potential to happen. And I would contend that this is the power of the Dark Presence, or whatever was within the lake itself if not the Dark Presence. There might be something else down there, for now though that doesn't really matter. Something down there was able to influence particular human minds to not create reality but to bend it, to influence it. Once he began writing, Thomas Zane became an enigma, because things go terribly awry and Zane was not an imbecile or naive. The Dark Presence made the mistake of playing its hand out to the poet. And now that we know what Thomas Zane certainly was not capable of doing, let's talk about what he actually did. Thomas Zane wrote his beloved Barbara back into existence. His young assistant, Emil Hartman, had pressured him hard to do this, and in his fragile state, he complied. She returned to him that very night, and Zane was so beyond himself with joy that he didn't initially notice that Barbara wasn't quite right. What had actually happened was Zane wrote the return of Barbara, but the devil was in the details. Remember, he couldn't create life. What came back within the body of his beloved was the Dark Presence. 
Zane had inadvertently created a circumstance in which it could hijack her body and make its way into our dimension. He created the circumstance in which it could cross its threshold and come to Earth. It didn't take Zane long to notice and realize that he had done something terrible. It wore the face of his beloved, but that thing was not his Barbara. He restrained her and he cut out her heart only to find that her body was filled with pure darkness. Thomas Zane wrote once more. He wrote about another writer who, in the future, would come to Cauldron Lake to contend with the dark presence. He wrote of things that would happen in their life, which would make the circumstances of his story come true. Zane wrote of an object called the Clicker that could fend off the darkness. It would create light. It was just a defunct button light switch, but an altered item it would be, which this new writer would have as a child, a gift obtained to stave away their fear of the dark. That child would one day become a writer whose journey in life would lead them to Bright Falls to finish this fight out. Thomas Zane knew he had to pay a price to stop the Dark Presence now. So, for the ending of his story, he wrote himself out of existence. He wrote of the events that would take place that would make him no longer exist in this world, events that he would choose to carry out. He also wrote out of existence everything that made the Dark Presence's emergence possible. Then, he set aside a shoebox and wrote that everything within it would be kept safe. Within, he placed some of his writings and the clicker. One day, unknown events would see it delivered to the child that he wrote of, and then it would find its way back to this box once again. Zane put on his diving suit, and then he took the possessed Barbara into his arms. The thing didn't have the physical strength to fight him off. He took it and himself out to the dock and plunged into the darkness of the lake. Thomas Zane was never seen again. There was a great quake and an eruption within the lake the next day. The island and the cabin were consumed by the dark waters. Over 30 people were killed in a mine collapse. Perhaps it was Thomas Zane reaching the end of his journey. But while Zane had held back the dark presence, it still tried to influence others to break through the threshold. A few years after Zane's tragic story, two heavy metal brothers found themselves in combat with the lake. Tor and Odin Anderson. They were rock gods, musical lords, badass to the core, and they had made a farm at Bright Falls, their homestead. They would use water from the lake to create moonshine, and it had a strange effect on people who consumed it. Not bad effects, just elating ones. It was mystical, for lack of a better word. Imagine a magical moonshine and coke. Oh, what I wouldn't give. But the Anderson brothers tended to overdo things. It was said that in 1976, Odin began contemplating cutting his eye out after some heavy partying and moonshine consumption. Tor would run across his property holding up a hammer trying to catch lightning. But the power of their music awoke something in the lake. It drew the dark presence towards Odin and Tor, and in their moonshine-ridden, amped-up state, they entered into combat with it. Tor and Odin pushed the Dark Presence back into the lake, but in doing so, they went a little mad, a little bit more off the rails. They never really returned to music, and over the years, they started exhibiting signs of dementia. They started losing their independence, yet even when they entered their elder years, they were still party boys and heavy metal legends. The Anderson brothers would eventually come under the supervision of Dr. Emil Hartman. After his boss Thomas Zane disappeared into the lake, Hartman decided his life's work would revolve around unlocking the mysteries of the lake's power. But he would do this by using particularly creative minds that struggled with mental health disorders. He became a psychiatrist and opened a large clinic nearby the lake. Troubled artists would go to Dr. Hartman's clinic for therapy, treatment, and healing. 
but in actuality, Hartman was observing what happened to these vulnerable people when near Cauldron Lake. Like, he was trying to recreate what happened with Zane in someone that he could influence and control, like a right bastard. For the most part, the community of Bright Falls just went about their lives. The Federal Bureau of Control was still under the leadership of Broderick Northmore at the time of Thomas Zane's vanishing, and it never really caught wind of what happened to him or the Anderson brothers. They were unaware of what Dr. Emil Hartman was doing to vulnerable people at his clinic. The Bureau just didn't have the surveillance to realize that something like that had taken place, so it was completely off their radar. And the dark presence kind of went dormant. There were a few decades of peace. But that changed in 2010 when a struggling writer came to Bright Falls. It's finally time to talk about Alan Wake. Alan was born in 1978 in New York City. His mother raised him alone. He never knew his father. When he was a boy, Alan was afraid of the dark, like deeply frightened by it. His mother, Linda, gave little Alan a magical light switch that she called the clicker. Yes, the same one Thomas Zane wrote about. Linda told her boy that the little light switch would drive away the darkness and keep him safe. And from then on, Alan kept the clicker close and he was never afraid of the dark again. Alan Wake developed a talent for words, even when he was young. He also had a talent for getting himself into trouble. He was a bit of a hothead and honestly just sort of an asshole. His balancing force was his best friend, Barry Wheeler. Alan and Barry met when they were young. They were two weird peas in a dysfunctional pod. When Alan got a little older, he started writing and expressed interest in pursuing that as a career. His best bud, Barry, promised to help him out on his path, and eventually he became his manager and guiding star. Barry brought stability and logic to Alan's chaotic nature. Alan got his first publication when he was 18 or 19 years old, just a young fellow. Some short story fiction published in a magazine that put him onto a career path destined for success. But as one might expect, when Alan got a bit older, barely even 20 years old, he started getting into trouble with the law. Public drunkenness, picking fights, barely avoiding jail time each time. His first real break came when he landed a writing gig for a show called Night Springs. It was one part Twilight Zone, one part Welcome to Night Vale. The sort of media that would be a lot of fun to write for. But his career really skyrocketed when he started writing a mystery crime thriller series about a man named Alex Casey. Before the age of 30, Wake had written five novels and they'd all sold like hotcakes. He was on top of the world, an international best-selling author time and time again. And he topped it off with a sixth and final book for the series. But, well, probably not a big surprise that Alan Wake was just a walking disaster of a person. Drugs and alcohol, getting into fights, putting his hands on paparazzi, just being really unpleasant all around. Alan was kept grounded and out of legal trouble by Barry, who became his agent, and eventually by his wife Alice as well, though his hot temper and addictive personality never really went away. Alan and Alice set up residence in New York City, but after finishing his Alex Casey series, Wake just couldn't write anymore. He had unbelievable writer's block, like the worst kind imaginable. For two whole years, he didn't write a single word. Alice and Barry didn't really get along. They didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Their personalities clashed, but they stood united in their care for Alan's mental health, and they wanted to help him work through whatever was troubling him. In 2010, Alice had read a book called The Creator's Dilemma by one Dr. Emil Hartman, and she was convinced that Alan needed to go to Bright Falls to spend time at his clinic, and Barry agreed that maybe a vacation was a good idea. 
Alice made arrangements, booked their trip, convinced Alan to go, but she didn't tell him about Dr. Hartman and his clinic. She decided to buy him a typewriter as a gift and didn't tell him that she was trying to get him to write again. Alan just thought they were taking a silly vacation. Yikes, the approach of it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission is a pretty terrible way to treat a loved one. The final stretch of their trip to Bright Falls was via a ferry. During the downtime, Alan fell asleep in their car and he had a most vicious nightmare. It was vivid, intentional, and memorable in every way. In his dream, Alan was recklessly driving up a lonely mountain road, desperately trying to reach a lighthouse, but he couldn't recall why he was doing that. As his car screamed up the road, Alan hit someone standing in the middle of it, a hitchhiker. He exited the car to check on them, but they were dead. He began to fear the repercussions that he would face. He would never see Alice again. He'd go to prison. But then his headlights went dark and the corpse vanished. He saw the lighthouse just down the bluff. He could reach it on foot. Not far down the path, the body of the hitchhiker appeared on the road and then immediately in front of Alan, and it spoke to him with malice and hate. It was a being that seemed to emanate darkness, and it started taking swings at Wake with an axe, chasing him down the small docks, forcing him to walk a mountain path to reach his destination. Wake saw strange things as he walked a missing poster of himself beside a photo of an unknown person in an archaic diving suit. The shadowy hitchhiker did not relent in its pursuit. He could dodge its attacks, run away from it, but Alan had no way of banishing this being. The insults and threats it threw at Wake were very personal, as though it knew of his fears and insecurities. He ran down the path as the dark, swirling storm behind him picked up. Across a bridge, he met a man named Clay Stewart that seemed to know Wake. Clay had seen Alan in his dreams before. He was a spectacular mind. Clay was in his own dream right now, intersecting with Alan's. He had been chasing him down and watching Alan from afar, intent on understanding why he kept seeing this man in his dreams. But Wake had no idea who this man is. Later, Clay in the waking world will go on to investigate Bright Falls and Alan Wake's time there. But for now, Clay Stewart is just some stranger in a dream, like a side character in one of Wake's books fully realized. Clay orders Alan into his well-lit cabin, but as soon as the writer enters it, the door slams behind him. Clay is cut down by the shadowy man to the horror of Alan Wake. He knows that this cabin is a death trap. He needs to get out. He runs through a door with a Tom the Poet poster on it. And as soon as he's out, he's bathed in light that pushes back the darkness trying to claim him. A male voice calls out, ordering him to follow the light. The voice tells him that the only place he can be safe and heal is within light. When Wake has recovered, it starts telling him things that don't immediately make sense. He recites a poem, but Alan doesn't know what the voice is trying to accomplish with it. It claims that it has entered his dreams to teach him about the darkness of its dangers, how to know when it is coming, and most importantly, how to fight back against it. The hitchhiker has been infected by the dark presence, he says, and only light can make him vulnerable again. A bright flashlight will suffice just fine in this case. Once the dark presence is dispelled from the outside, Wake can use a gun and, well, kill the man. If he doesn't, the dark presence will return and resume its attacks. There's no way to fully cast out the darkness, so its puppet has to die. Once the voice has taught Wake all he needs to know about how to succeed against the dark presence and its pawns, it departs, giving Alan back his dream. His final thought within the nightmare is of the darkness and how it's taken over the world. Somehow, he knows that the lighthouse is the last safe place on Earth. He fights his way down the path, 
Each step, the darkness behind him seems to be a bit more tangible, more dangerous. Wake makes it to the supposed safety of the lighthouse and goes into the central spiral staircase leading up to the lantern. But somehow, the light is extinguished and he's left vulnerable to the dark presence. Alan looks up as something descends the stairwell, but then he wakes up. Back in the waking world, Alice greets her husband. He's moody, kind of self-centered, but Alice shrugs off his standoffish attitude with some good news. They have finally arrived in Bright Falls. An old fellow on the ferry tells them that they have arrived at a good time. Something called Deer Fest is in two weeks. And the old man recognizes Alan. He's a big fan of his writings, which means, well, things might not be as private and peaceful for the wakes as they might have hoped if there are avid readers in this little town. Alice and Alan need to get their cabin key from a local diner, or maybe the local diner. Bright Falls seems like the sort of place where there's one grocery store and a single intersection, so the diner is easy to find. Alan hops out to go inside on his own, and Alice drives off to get some gas in the car. As soon as he's inside, the waitress recognizes him, and he sees a cardboard cutout of himself in the corner. Oh boy. The waitress, Rose, claims to be his biggest fan and isn't quiet about her accolades, which probably feels kind of weird for Alan. These folks, they seem nice enough. Rose is definitely the excitable one here. The park ranger, Rusty, sitting at the counter is cordial. And two old men sitting at a booth are definitely the ratty ones here. These are the Anderson brothers, Odin and Tor. The landlord, Carl Stuckey, has the keys that Alan needs, but he's in the restroom down a very dark hallway. Alan's patience lasts about three minutes before he takes off down that dark hallway to find the landlord. And a very strange, nervous woman is standing in front of it, talking about the lights. She has told the landlord to fix the lights. Did he want people to die or worse? Between Rose, the Anderson brothers at the loud jukebox, and now this lady going on about the darkness and the light bulbs, I really don't blame Alan for getting irritated. It's a lot of sensory overload. Down the dark hallway are the bathrooms, but no one responds to his knock at the door. There is someone here, though, or rather, a presence. And if it was trying to be non-menacing, then it's way off the mark. This apparent old woman says that the landlord fell ill and she has the key, along with instructions on how to get to her cabin. It's a very, very odd interaction that's almost uncomfortable to watch, and Wake takes off as soon as he has the keys in hand back into the loud dining room past the Anderson brothers, who strangely refer to him as Tom, and out into the fresh air of the outdoors where Alice is waiting for him. And they're completely oblivious to the landlord, Carl Stuckey, running after them yelling that he needs to give them their keys. On the drive out to the cabin that the lady in black gave them directions for, Alice starts telling Alan that this would be a great setting for a book. She's starting to push boundaries. The Wakes have no reason to be alarmed by the location of their cabin. It's a cabin out on a small island in Cauldron Lake, Diver's Isle, it's called. Could be setting off alarm bells for you, but for Alan and Alice, it's just a beautiful vacation destination. Alice has an intense fear of darkness, and with the sun going down, they hurried up to the cabin to get their bags inside, get the generator going, and get the lights on. As Alan made his way throughout the cabin, he felt the oppressiveness of that nightmare he'd had returning. Once the cabin was ready and Alice was safely inside, Alan kind of started coming around to the idea of a vacation here. It was gorgeous and quiet, and he could really use some rest. Not have to think about or worry over his writing, just breathe for a while. Back upstairs, Alan makes the discovery. 
the typewriter. Surprise! Alice, where are your pants? And you see, this is why you don't withhold information from others or lie to them or try to force them into situations. As soon as Alice starts talking about the clinic and Dr. Hartman and writing, Alan completely blows up. Neither of them notice the lady in black appearing as soon as the lights flicker and then he storms out. Remember kids, when you try to manipulate others, paranatural entities will get involved and you don't want the shadow people to get you, do you? So don't tell fibs. Alan goes outside, out into the darkness, where he knows that Alice will not try to follow him. But this episode of intense anger subsides into frustration, which fades once Alice begins to scream. The cabin goes dark and his wife is screaming bloody murder about something in it. The back door is wide open and the safety railing on the porch has been completely busted out. It's directly above the dark lake itself and just below the surface of the water, Alan can see Alice being pulled under. Without a moment of hesitation, he plunges into the abyss after her. He has no idea what happened, how he got into a car wreck, why his head is bleeding. All he caught were flashes, but a week has passed by and he has no recollection of what he did. But we will not be so coy. Let's make sense of this so that we can understand what is about to happen. For one week, Alan Wake was afflicted by the power within the lake, the Dark Presence, just like Thomas Zane was. Alan wrote a manuscript for a story called Departure. Like Zane wrote for Barbara, Wake was writing a story that would bring Alice back. Unlike Barbara Jagger, though, Alice was not dead. The Dark Presence learned its lesson last time. It wouldn't kill its victim, it would use her as bait. In his stupor, he wrote about events that would take place soon, but he did it with a poignancy and an accuracy that not even Thomas Zane reached. Zane didn't even scratch the surface of it. Alan Wake does not create a reality, but he sees what's to come with terrifying accuracy, and it would be fair to call him clairvoyant in that regard. But what might be a better term for Alan Wake would be para-utilitarian, a prime candidate, much like Jesse and Dylan Faden, except Alan Wake did not have Polaris to protect him. He was caught completely unprepared, uneducated, completely blindsided, and at the mercy of a paranatural entity. This could spell doom for the world. But before the end, Alan realized what the Dark Presence was trying to do. He found a few of Thomas Zane's old books and he learned about what happened to him. He figured out what was going to happen to him if he didn't stop it, so he rewrote parts of his manuscript to challenge and halt the Dark Presence. He wrote that Thomas Zane, who was now a very weak being, would come to help him flee the cabin. He left his manuscript in the care of Thomas Zane and then he bolted, he ran for it. He ran for the car, exhausted and nearly delirious. Once he was out, Zane began to prepare to play his part. He took the clicker and he took Alan Wake's writings. He would plant the pages of the manuscript all around Bright Falls, and he would show Alan bits of his time locked in the cabin through televisions. He would need to periodically appear to act as a guide for Wake's future actions, and the clicker would need to be kept someplace safe for the future as well. He had just the spot. Now, let's see what Alan Wake wrote. He's alone with a head injury, and no idea of where here is. Thankfully, there's a gas station a fair distance away, and he'll have to trek through a dark forest to reach it, but at least he's not completely isolated. Partway down the trail, a huge light appears in a clearing and tosses a few pages out for Alan to pick up. They're pages from a book that he wanted to write called Departure, and it lists him as the author, but he has no memory of making these pages. 
On this page, he reads that the hero of the story is uh, attacked by an axe murderer in the woods at night. Uh-oh, that's a pretty bold start to the story, Mr. Wig. He runs a ways up the path and starts to see ghastly outlines of not-quite-right people in the fog. Seems that departure is a horror story and he's about to find himself neck deep in peril. He ends up at a lumber yard, and under normal circumstances, this would be a fortunate find. There might be people here, a phone, a way into town. But what he actually finds is the landlord, Carl Stuckey, who was supposed to give him his cabin keys at the diner. He is clad in shadow, talking nonsense, and he has an axe. In his manuscript pages, Wake calls these creatures the Taken. They've been possessed by the dark presence, and like what he dreamt during that nightmare on the ferry, the page tells him to use light against it. The nearest light source is the trailer across the yard, which is a run he has to make with a very upset shadow man on his heels. And if there were any doubt that this thing means business, it's very quickly shown how lethal they intend to be. It drives its axe into the trailer door once Wake has it closed. Conveniently placed there, almost as if by design, is a handgun and a flashlight, both tools that Alan is going to need to survive. While the Taken can't enter the trailer due to the light, that doesn't mean that the log loader can't. These beings are as intelligent as they are hostile, so any place that Alan Wake takes sanctuary in probably won't last for long. They'll find a way to either push him out or they'll get the lights off. At a moment's notice, he needs to be ready to run. At least now, he'll be able to fight his way through some of them, though. As he journeys on, Alan finds pages detailing upcoming interactions with tertiary characters, townsfolk mostly. He has concussive flashes of his wife's vanishing. He has to mete out violence against humanoid darkness. He finds a page about Barry, his best friend and agent. It hints that Barry is en route to this place after not hearing from Wake for several days. Each page he finds is like a prophecy of something that is about to happen. But Alan just can't piece it together, and of course, why should he? We can make sense of it with the knowledge that we have, but Wake, this is all new. This is all fresh. Undisturbed soil that he has to claw through and it will take a great deal of time to come to terms with it, to understand it. But first things first, reach that damned gas station. The light of the station is such a comfort, a return to the sanity of the world. He spots a Deerfest countdown nearby one of the pumps and pieces together that he has been missing for an entire week. And inside the garage of the gas station, it looks trashed like there was a fight. A bright glow brings his attention to a TV in the corner where he sees himself, it was back during that lost week when he was devising a plan under the influence of the Dark Presence to bring Alice back. His ramblings sound like those of a madman, which, well, given the circumstances, isn't entirely inaccurate. Finally, inside the lobby, he's able to make a phone call to the Bright Falls Police Station, and Sheriff Sarah Breaker arrives in no time at all. And she's an interesting character, former FBI turned sheriff, and her father, Frank Breaker, was an agent with the Federal Bureau of Control. She doesn't seem to be neck deep in knowledge of the FBC, but she knows enough. When Alan Wake starts talking about he and Alice staying on a cabin on the lake, she very firmly corrects him. That island vanished after an earthquake there in the 1970s. She offers to drive him out there to show him, but before they go, she asks him where the landlord Carl Stuckey is, the guy that tried to take an ax to Wake. He decides to withhold that information of the Taken coming after him. It would sound way too outlandish. Sheriff Breaker takes him to Cauldron Lake, where Diver's Isle once was, and he's terrified to discover that she was right. The cabin that he and Alice had been staying at, it's been gone for decades. 
Back at the station for a while, Alan rests and remembers something from three years ago, when he was still on top of the world, about to release the last Alex Casey book. He and Alice were settled in during a snowstorm and the lights went out. So he told her a story from his childhood, about his mother, about a gift that she gave him called the clicker. It helped him get over his fear of the dark when he was little, and he still had it to that day. It was a nice memory, but we can't stay in the past. When Alan regains his senses, he's sitting in the police station being seen by Dr. Nelson. Wake says that he feels fine, nothing strange is happening, he just wants to get the doctor to sign off on him being okay so that he can get back out there to look for Alice. In the station lobby, that weird woman that's obsessed with light bulbs is repeatedly testing the lights. Cynthia Weaver is her name, and after the night he just had after seeing all the things that he had seen, maybe he should take Cynthia Weaver a bit more seriously. Before he can go, the sheriff wants to have a few words with him. She wants to know where his wife is, how he got to that gas station, where is the landlord, Carl Stuckey. A phone call interrupts their meeting, one that he steps out to take privately. He hears Alice's voice asking him for help, but it's an unnatural tone. A man begins speaking, claiming to have kidnapped Alice, and he starts giving Wake very specific instructions to get out the station, ditch the cops, go out back and look for a junked out truck, and then get to the Elderwood National Park. Alan just wants Alice back, so of course he'll comply. And thankfully, these officers are very accommodating for his desire to go out back to get some fresh air. They even give him directions on how to get out back, how to get out of the station. In that backyard, he finds the decayed truck that the kidnapper told him to look at, and in it, he finds Alice's driver's license. So he has to take this serious. During this panic, Barry Wheeler, his best friend and agent, decides to give him a call. Barry hasn't heard from the Wakes in a week now, and he is a neurotic-as-hell person. He tells Alan that he flew in after they had stopped responding. He's been worried sick and trying to track them down. Alan asks him to pick him up at the sheriff's station, and then kind of rudely hangs up on him. And you know what's just so, so convenient? Dr. Emil Hartman is in the lobby. He's the guy that was once Thomas Zane's assistant that pushed him into writing using the power of the lake, the asshole who has a clinic where he studies the impact of the lake on vulnerable artists with mental health problems. He's a real slime bag. He steps right up and he invites Alan Wake to stay at his lodge, but Alan remembers his name. Alice had contacted Hartman about helping Alan, and the nerve of this guy going behind his back and the smarmy look on his face is just so punchable. Thankfully, Barry, the real hero of this story, arrives on the scene to get Alan out of the station. Hartman says it's fine, the sheriff isn't going to arrest Alan Wake. Barry very quickly gets him out of the station and back onto the road. Alan tells Barry everything, every single thing that has happened to him. And Barry thinks that he is a little bit nuts, but the manuscript catches his attention. Alan has finally been writing again, that's good news. Never mind all the paranatural events and that Alan might have shot somebody. The duo get out to the national park and they decide to rent a cabin, but their arguments over what's happened during the last week continue on into the lobby. And Barry isn't wrong. Everything Alan is telling him sounds absolutely bonkers. He has a head injury, his wife is missing, he's not wanting to cooperate with the cops, he's mixing reality and fiction, and those are all really, really bad. But Wake refuses to back down. The kidnapper wanted to meet him at midnight at a very specific spot and he intends to be there. And he will not get the cops involved. They get their cabin and continue to argue all day, deep into the night. 
Before Alan leaves, Barry asks how can he help since apparently he can't change his mind about all this. And Alan relents a little bit. He tells Barry that if he's not back by sunup, then he has his blessing to call the cops. The meeting spot, Lover's Peak, is a short walk up a trail. He heads out alone with a flashlight and a handgun for protection. Manuscript pages crop up around the path, and they're as as cryptic as they are enlightening. He gets insights into Barry's thinking, Rose and the park ranger Rusty's feelings for each other, but a highly concerning page tells us something attacking the visitor center and killing Rusty. Alan runs to the visitor center to warn Rusty, and once the dark presence appears, Alan's head starts to ache and he sees flashes of his typewriter, of Alice, of Thomas Zane, and then the gunshots begin. When he finally arrives, Alan finds a bloodbath in the visitor center, but Rusty is still barely alive. He tells Wake what happened, and it was just like something that he had read on a piece of paper, that Alan needs to get the lights on immediately. When he finds the breaker box, well, there's an accident, he's too late, he cannot get the lights back on. And then the awful, sad screams of Rusty resume. The dark presence and the Taken have returned to finish the job. At the visitor center, a hole has been punched through the wall. Rusty is gone, but Alan can hear him nearby, speaking nonsense, gibberish. Rusty has become one of the Taken, and Alan must now put him down. Another victim in this terrible ordeal. His last thoughts were of Rose, of how she made him feel young again. He would never have the chance to tell her about his feelings now. It's about this time that Barry starts seeing things. He starts witnessing what Alan had described to him, and he calls to ask just what the hell is going on. He's having a mini breakdown over the phone, and imagine you're in his shoes. Your best friend is jabbering on about how the impossible is happening, and then you actually witness it. Well, Barry is completely on board now, an ally to Wig, who so desperately needs one. But Barry can't help him right now. With each step, Alan is more isolated and the Taken are starting to chase him down. He finds a manuscript page which mentions a new name, Agent Nightingale, a drunkard FBI agent with a bad attitude and a hair trigger. But there has been no Agent Nightingale seen thus far, so it can wait for now. He has other things to prioritize. Near the top of the peak, Wake takes a tumble and is saved by a man with flares. He recognizes him from the ferry ride into town, which means that this must be the kidnapper. He's up here actively fighting off the Taken with powerful flares, and he is a viciously unfriendly guy. But Alan lost his gun during his tumble, so they kind of need each other's help to get through this trail. So he keeps his mouth shut for now. And these flares, they're a good idea. They're far more dangerous to the Taken than just the flashlight. When they have some breathing room, the man has a lot to say. He's far more educated on what's taking place than anyone Wake has spoken to before. His name is Mott, and Mott knows what's happening here is because Alan wrote something. And there's a very real risk of something terrible being released at the end of this. He wants the entire manuscript, every page of it, or he says he'll make Alice suffer. They have a tussle which ends in a fall and Alan taking possession of the firearm. But though Mott has lost control of this situation, he still has Alice. Therefore, Alan has to comply with him, bring him the manuscript or else. The problem being, Alan doesn't have the whole thing. He gave it to Thomas Zane. He decides that he needs Barry's help on this. He can't handle it alone. So he begins another long trek through the woods back to the cabin that they rented. The dark presence is starting to kick up debris around the mountain, even sending an old plane wreck careening down the hills. 
The Taken are growing in numbers and strength, and Barry calls him to let him know that now birds are swarming the cabin, like out of a Hitchcock film. Getting back to Barry quickly is going to require some wheels, so he starts commandeering any vehicles that he can find along the way. You know what's a powerful tool against the Taken? Headlights. Now we're playing with portals. At least until the roads become impassable from random debris and cars that the Dark Presence has been tossing around like volleyballs. The kidnapper Mock calls him again, reminding him that he wants the manuscript, but Alan has realized that there's no ending for it yet. He needs time to put everything together and to figure out how it should end. He asks for a week, but Mott says he can have two days. If he doesn't bring the finished manuscript to a nearby coal mine by noon two days from now, then Alice is presumably good as dead. Barry wasn't exaggerating about the whole bird thing. When Wake finally gets back, they're swarming around the cabin. But they're just creatures of darkness, just like the Taken, and they can't be dispatched just like them. What makes them difficult is their mobility and their numbers, but handling them is just a matter of timing and patience. When the coast is clear, Barry opens the door for his friend and immediately apologizes for doubting him. He'll do whatever Alan needs to get this figured out, to get Alice back. In the morning, Barry goes into town to ask about the kidnapper to see if he can learn anything that will give them an edge. And while he does that, Alan tries to figure out an ending for the manuscript, but he just can't. He can't get a single word down. He doesn't fully understand what's happening. He's not near the lake, and there's so much of the story that he hasn't seen. If he messes anything up, the story will fall apart. Alice will die. Potentially, a lot of people will die. While in town, Barry gets a call from the diner waitress, Rose. In a weirdly dead voice, she tells Barry that she has found Wake's manuscript pages, and she asks if they can come to see her out the trailer park that she lives in outside of town. Barry doesn't suspect anything being amiss. He's too happy with Rose's news to bother asking any questions. But Rose is in dire straits. The woman in black has her under its control. Alan, however, is a bit perplexed on how she got the pages. He still goes along with it, goes with Barry to the trailer park, but he is skeptical. He's not so willing to buy that Rose is just a resourceful gal. Wake gets a call from the sheriff telling him that Agent Nightingale with the FBI would like to see him, and they're very intent on doing so. Based on the few pages that he's found mentioning that particular agent, well, this probably isn't a good development in the story. But Alan isn't going to dodge the police. He says that he'll go to the police station soon. As they walk towards Rose's trailer, Barry tells Alan about some of the things he's learned. This area is crazy disappearances, strange deaths, urban legends that all come true. It seems to be based around Cauldron Lake itself. And the park manager chimes in, telling them that local natives believe the lake held a doorway to the underworld, cough, cough, threshold. And Barry tells Wake about the poet Thomas Zane, that he once owned the island out on the lake. But none of Zane's writings seem to exist anymore, at least not that Barry could find. Alan had found a few of his books in a special shoebox, but that's really all that remained. They don't know it yet, but Zane wrote himself out of existence, save whatever was in that shoebox, so only traces of his life remain at the public archives. It was assumed that Zane died in 1970, when the earthquake took out the island on the lake. Nowadays, Zane's beloved Barbara Jagger was a boogeyman tale. She was called the Scratching Hag, and she'll steal away children in the dark, which is kind of a sad way to remember such a sweet soul. Turns out, Cynthia Weaver, that woman obsessed with light bulbs, has written a number of articles about the strange goings-ons in Bright Falls, about Zane, the lake itself, local mythos. After Zane and Barbara died, Cynthia had a bit of a breakdown. She would be a good interview to carry out. She has to know something about all of this. 
Rose lives in a cute little trailer and promptly shows up at the window once they arrive. She's very clearly acting strange. Rather than just get the pages and leave, they sit down for some coffee in her living room. Some drugged coffee. Barry and Alan are knocked out cold and it barely even took a minute. In his dreams, Alan sees that huge light again and knows it to be Thomas Zane. It tells Wake that the dark presence is coming for him and it's doing it wearing his beloved Barbara's skin. Zane cannot stop it, he's far too weak. Alan must stand against it by turning the lights on. But the darkness is even here now, interfering with Zane's message. The woman in black insists that he continue his writing, finish his story. When he wakes up, it's dark outside. At least he somehow made it into the bed, in Rose's creepy, creepy bedroom. Poor Barry is just slumped over face first in the living room. He sees another recording on the TV, and it's a huge information dump on how exactly the woman in black is using him. While he was writing for that week, she kept forcing revisions. She would force herself into the story, less of him, more of her. She was going to get out through Alan Wake, but she was using Alice's salvation as a bargaining chip. In the front room, Rose is lost in some sort of thought loop, not in control of herself. And Alan, he feels pity for her. None of this was her fault, he knows. She's a victim of it as well. Barry, meanwhile, is in his own sort of la-la land. So Alan departs to go get the car to find a way to get Barry into it as soon as possible. A manuscript page outside the trailer tips him off that the park manager was nervous about what was going on inside of Rose's home. So he called the police on them. A whole gaggle of them show up as soon as he hits the fence. And amongst them is a man who has seen Alan Wake before. He has seen him in his worst nightmares. He is a man who has lost everything, who is here to put down a monster. Now enter the madness of Agent Nightingale. <laughs> 